Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to Part 4. In our last session, we talked about how Genesis spends a considerable amount of time refuting a Babylonian worldview that was common when the book received its final editorial form. In that worldview, humans were disposable tools, the gods were often at loggerheads, creation was the result of a cosmic battle in which the chief god Marduk fought against chaos for his very life and the lives of the gods in his political coalition, for lack of a better word. Genesis, by contrast, paints a very different picture. It is totally monotheistic. There is no theogony, or origin of the gods. There's no battle. There's just creation by fiat. You speak, and it's done. This emphasis on monotheism turns up in an interesting way when Genesis talks about the creation of the sun and the moon. The text reads, God created the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. Well, why not just use the words sun and moon? Well, the reason why is because the Hebrew word for sun is Shemesh. But there's also a Babylonian deity, a solar deity in fact, named Shamshu. Keep in mind that ancient Hebrew had no vowels in its writing system, so if you take away the vowels in Shemesh and Shamshu, they look exactly the same. The same thing applies to the Hebrew word for moon, Yerach, which could easily be mistaken for a Canaanite moon god, Yarish. Genesis wants to make certain that there is no question of a rival or any accessory gods. Elohim constitutes a pantheon of one. In chapter 2, particularly in verse 4, we see the beginning of a repetition of the creation story all over again. This is the textbook instance of one of the most important and probably controversial aspects of modern biblical scholarship. The Documentary Hypothesis This is the idea that Genesis, and many other books of the Bible, are not the result of a single author, but are in fact a patchwork of different sources stitched together by an unknown editor, usually called the Redactor, and this happened sometime during the Babylonian exile. The reason why Genesis chapter 2 is so important for this is because it provides such a clear example of the kinds of problems that led to this hypothesis. This second creation story starts with its own introduction. It reads, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that God made the heaven and the earth. Already we see some interesting differences. For one thing, the name of God is no longer Elohim in Hebrew, but Yahweh, which is traditionally read Adonai, or Lord, to prevent pronunciation of God's name, at least by uh, traditional Jewish readers. We will adopt that convention for this podcast for the most part. Another difference is that the text talks about the day, singular, in which God made the heavens and the earth, not seven days or six days. It is true that day 
can also mean an unspecified period of time, but even if we allow for that, it's a significant departure from chapter 1, where the week-long creation process is so vital to the structure of the chapter. Most modern biblical scholars agree that these two accounts of the creation are the work of two different sources. Chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 3 is called the priestly source, or simply P. We don't have names for the people who wrote them. The source for the second account is called J for Yahwist because this is the name of God used consistently by this source. The letter J is used because the source was first identified by a German scholar, Julius Wellhausen, and in German, Yahweh starts with a J. The priestly source, P, is very concerned with ritual, purity, and temple practice, among other things. By contrast, J is a bit more earthy, more lavish in its details, more colorful, if you will. For example, in chapter 2, J gives us the inside dirt, if you'll pardon the pun, on Adam's creation, formed from dust, and later, the creation of Eve. Last time we mentioned, sort of in passing, about the role of names in the ancient world, and this makes for a very important part of the story in chapter 2 of when God decided to make a partner for Adam. Verses 19 and 20 read, So out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle, and to the birds of the air, and to every animal of the field. But for the man there was not found a helper as his partner. So in the ancient world, to name something was to have power over it. It was to assume responsibility for it. But as much as anything else, it was literally a creative act. Recall last time when we talked about the Babylonian epic of creation, the uncreated world was described as when the heavens had not been named and when firm ground below had not been called by name. In chapter 1 of Genesis, God divides one thing from another and then names each half, earth and sky, land and sea, and so on. Something without a name, or a person whose name is forgotten, is consigned to oblivion and even annihilation. In Judeo-Christian antiquity, a person consisted of body, soul, and name. The ancient world is filled with instances of the power of names. A famous Egyptian story tells of how the goddess Isis managed to suss out the secret true name of Ra, and thereby obtained control over him and his realm. So for God to allow Adam to name the animals is a pretty big deal. Humanity is not just a creature, but an active participant in the creative process, a partner with God. In fact, it's about as close to creation by fiat, by naming, as humans are able to get. At the same time, as the co-creator of the animal world, humanity bears responsibility for their welfare. But this is not clear unless you understand the cultural significance of names and the act of naming in the ancient world. This episode, when Adam names the animals, also dovetails with the injunction in chapter 1, and reinforced in chapter 2, that humans are only allowed to eat plants. At this point in chapter 2, we come to the creation of woman. 
It's a rather strange story in which God takes a rib from a sleeping Adam and fashions it into a woman who turns out to be just the right person to be Adam's partner. This episode has spawned any number of explanations and interpretations, some more fanciful than others, some charming, some appalling. One can almost imagine Adam telling a suspicious Eve, of course there isn't another woman, count my ribs if you don't believe me. Okay, that was bad. Time doesn't permit us to explore these various interpretations, but I'll give you my personal best guess. People who wrote texts, scribes, were members of a specialized profession. It should come as no surprise that scribes wrote as much to impress other scribes as they did for their clients, and I think this might be one such case, in which a Hebrew scribe decided to put something out there to impress his Babylonian colleagues. Babylonian is written in cuneiform, in which each sign represents a syllable rather than a single vowel or consonant. Signs could also represent entire words. When they do, they're called logograms. Some signs have multiple values. They can represent multiple syllables and multiple logographic values. A certain display of erudition among cuneiform scribes was the ability to use these different values to engage in a sort of wordplay that only another scribe would catch. In this case, there was one particular sign whose primary syllabic value is Z, but it also has three additional logographic values, woman, life, and rib. Since we know that Genesis was written in a climate of debate versus Babylonian ideas, it strikes me that perhaps this story was couched in an erudite bit of literary wordplay that only made sense if the reader had a knowledge of Babylonian cuneiform writing. We now come to the story of Adam, Eve, and the Serpent, quite possibly the most heavily interpreted or overinterpreted story in the Old Testament. Life in Eden was good. Plenty to eat, with minimal effort, good company, no laundry, a clear purpose in caring for creation, but otherwise very few rules. One of these rules concerned a particular tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God had explicitly given permission for humans to eat fruits, but equally explicitly, not that particular fruit. What was this tree? Why was it forbidden? The name knowledge of good and evil is considered by many scholars to be a merism, that is, a term used to encompass everything. Just as the poster for a circus might say, fun for ages 9 to 90, this is not to say that eight-year-olds need not apply, it's a way of saying everybody. The same is probably true here, except that we are talking about all knowledge, good, evil, and everything in between. Additionally, notice that it is not the knowledge of good from evil, or the knowledge of the difference between good and evil. 
I don't think that the author meant to imply that this fruit somehow endowed one with all the universal knowledge in one giant mental download, but it was thought to awaken the mind to that potentiality. Stories of humans obtaining knowledge forbidden to them are found in many cultures. Perhaps the most famous is the Greek myth of Prometheus. This isn't the story about him stealing fire from the gods and giving it to humanity, but a different story. In it, he hopes to see a great creation, humanity, reach its full potential, so he endows the rather sheepish creation of Zeus with curiosity and intellect, the mind to conceive, the will to direct. Zeus is not pleased with Prometheus's insolent meddling and sentences him to be chained to a rock while an eagle pecks out his liver. Forever. And this brings us to the serpent. Who was this serpent, and what is he doing playing such a crucial role in the story? We know that this story takes place in what we might call mythical time for a number of reasons. Humans are on face-to-face -face speaking terms with God. There's no such thing as rain as we know it. The Garden of Eden has a talking snake. But who or what is this creature? One problem we contend with when looking at this story is something I alluded to in a previous podcast, namely that the Bible carries with it a huge body of traditions accumulated over the centuries. Many of them don't have any actual basis in the biblical text. For example, if you go to any Christian church in the land and claim that the serpent is the devil or Satan, no one's going to argue with you. But the Old Testament makes no such association anywhere. The earliest such connection is found in a book called The Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 24, which is a very late tradition from the intertestamental period written around 200 BCE. One problem raised by this tradition, depending on your point of view, is that the text explicitly groups the serpent with the creatures God created. And so if the serpent is the devil, it makes God responsible for the creation of evil. This may or may not be a problem, depending on your particular theological bent, if any. There are many conjectures as for what the serpent is. The Talmud, which is a Jewish book of uh, legal interpretation of scripture, uh, holds that the serpent is purely symbolic of human curiosity. The serpent was known culturally in, in many different uh, realms as a bringer of prosperity. It brings wisdom, life, it advances knowledge. It's the animal of death and life in that by shedding its skin it can renew itself. It's also associated with chaos in opposition to God. Many cultures associate the serpent with the realm of magic in the sense that the condemnation of the serpent later in chapter 3 is part of a condemnation of oriental heathen magic that uh, somehow these serpent cults had access to higher knowledge of life by means of their magic and divination that was associated with the serpent. Many modern scholars claim that the serpent represents Canaanite fertility cults that promise life and knowledge. Serpent cults probably taken from the Canaanites uh, were part of ancient Israelite practice and there are also records of a native serpent cult in 
Israel, particularly in Numbers chapter 21 and Second uh, Kings uh, chapter 18. The source of all evil is therefore those religions that are opposed to Israel. But this is a problem because, as we mentioned, God explicitly made this creature, so it's a little hard to understand how it could be a symbol of everything God opposes. In fact, the text says nothing to suggest any ill will or enmity between the serpent and God until after the temptation. Besides, this story is bigger than Israel or its religion. In this story, Adam and Eve represent not Israel, but all of humanity. One of my favorite commentators on Genesis, Klaus Westermann, also points out that the desire to become wise constitutes the heart of temptation or at least temptation in this instance. The desire is not merely to do what is forbidden, because as such it attracts the senses, but also to acquire wisdom, as the serpent argued. The delightful, attractive fruit that draws one to bite it does not, as such, contain temptation. Someone had to point it out. Someone had to disclose the connection between the satisfaction that comes from that enjoyment and the transgression of a limit, the longing for a new and hitherto excluded dimension to life. The story told in Genesis chapter 3 is well known. The serpent strikes up a conversation with Eve about this one limit on their activities not to eat the fruit of a certain tree. The key points concerning consequences of eating are, on the one hand, there was knowledge and wisdom to be gained, but on the other, there was the threat of death, which the serpent disputed. Eve takes the fruit and eats it, and then gives some to Adam, who basically falls in line. Consequences follow. They lose their innocence, but gain awareness. This new knowledge gives them the ability to craft their own destiny, and endows them with free will. However, they are driven out of Eden and must get by on hard work and their newly acquired smarts. There are many explanations for this turn of events. One is that God is jealous of his position, such that afterwards he observes, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Eve's role in all this is a matter of massive controversy. On the one hand, she and all subsequent women are stigmatized as disobedient troublemakers. However, I hasten to point out that the Old Testament is filled with stories of women who break the rules and transcend limits and, in the process, secure the survival and success for their families and progenies. Many commentators read Eve Choice in the same way. The Christian interpretation of the temptation story is very interesting, and variant. For the first 300 years of the Christian era, Christians saw freedom as the message of this story, the acquisition of free will, freedom from demonic powers, freedom from unjust government and the mastery of one's fate. During this time, Christianity was a dissident, radical sect, but when the Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity in 313 CE, all that changed. Suddenly, Christian officials were no longer hunted, but increasingly part of the power elite. Christians were not only free to follow their faith, they were encouraged to do so by the state. So in the 4th century, a Christian theologian, Augustine of Hippo, arrives at a radical interpretation of this story that essentially turned it on its head, 
based partly on his own inability to resist temptation. Instead of obtaining moral freedom, the temptation became the fall in which that freedom was lost. By giving in to temptation, humanity became corrupted at the most basic level, which made humanity both unable to make sound moral choices and incapable of genuine political freedom. The Church found Augustine's view politically useful, since it justified the need for a large Church bureaucracy. But in Augustine's time, his idea was profoundly controversial and the subject of protracted and bitter disputes. On the face, his ideas do come across as pretty strange, even preposterous. But with the help of the Church, these views not only became normative for Christianity, they have taken root in our political, psychological, and cultural thinking, whether one is Christian or even religious or not. However one chooses to look at this story, the narrator of Genesis clearly understands a profound riddle to human nature, one that he himself leaves largely unanswered. That riddle is, as Westermann puts it, the urge of humanities to transcend themselves by overstepping the limits set for them, even if those new possibilities come about at the cost of transgression. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.